Okay. I forgot. Do I go ahead and go? Do I do I say something now? <laughs> I'm out of it. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to another. Oh, my bad. Okay. Okay. Hey. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the Morning Star Show featuring me, Super Slash 75. I am he, Super Slash 75. I want to give a shout out to Rodna Boards, our producer somewhere out in the, in the comments lurking, Cindy Ashby. Uh, you can visit us on www.onthewakeupradio.com. We are all uh, on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Spotify and iHeartRadio. Also, you can always uh, find the episodes on the YouTube channel for On the Wake Up Radio as well. Uh, the call in number, as always, is 646 547 1305. You can find me on, on the Super Slot 75 on YouTube. Merchandise is always available at teespring.com forward slash Super Slot 75. Also, Please uh, feel free to donate any amount which goes to uh, to the website and airtime. It is a labor of love, but we still live in a costly world. If you appreciate the free content, please help us keep the message uncensored and free. You can always donate through PayPal at onthewakeupradio at gmail.com. Also, if you would like an advertisement slot, please hit us up at onthewakeupradio at gmail.com. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but I had a very interesting week. YouTube wise, but I'm not going to get into it because they're not worth the energy nor my time. So we're, what we're going to do is get into what I part of the show that I, I think I'm going to stick with moving forward. We're going to talk about some movies, well, one movie in particular, and point out some messages in these older movies that we may have missed, and uh, we'd like to go back and revisit and see we, what we can catch uh, from what they was what they were telling us years ago. So uh, tonight's movie breakdown, real quick, is going to be I Come in Peace. Uh, and other titles, it went by Dark Angel, starring Dolph Lundgren, uh, Jay Billis. Yes, Jay Billis, the ESPN Sports Center that played at Kansas. He was in this movie as well. So basically, I Come in Peace is a is is a intergalactic cops and robbers drug dealer movie, right? Okay. So the opening scene has uh, the bad guys. Now, this this drug dealer gang is called they're called the white boys. I shit you not. They're called the white boys. They're a bunch of yuppie drug dealers. And what they ended up doing was they broke into a police uh, lockup, impersonated a cop, stole a bunch of heroin for this drug deal that's coming up. Now, Dolph Lundgren is uh, he's a narc or a detective, rather. And he's doing surveillance. His partner is having to deal with the white boys. He's undercover. And so the white boys know that uh, uh, Dolph Lundgren's partner is a cop. Just so happens to be a brother. He gets outed. He gets shot and killed. Uh, they rob 
the money and the, they steal the heroin. Meanwhile, while this is all tra- uh, taking place, uh, Dolph Lundgren's character, Jack Kane, stops a robbery across the street from the drug deal going down. So he kind of missed his chance to save his partner, going, you know, getting killed, whatever. So then as Warren and the, the, the white boys leave, they leave the henchmen to clean up the mess. Now, here comes this seven foot tall, blonde haired alien played by Matisse, Matthias Hughes. Right. Matthias Hughes, um, he was that wave of 80s action guys like um, Oleg Takatarev, like all these guys that came after Arnold, these Russians, Hungarians, Germans and Swedes that all had these little bit parts in these movies uh, propagated off of Arnold's success. They all thought they could be the next Arnold. But whatever the case, Matthias Hughes uh, plays we're going to call refer to him as, as the blonde alien. He is an intergalactic drug dealer. So what he end up doing is he murders all of the drug dealer, uh, the, the white boy henchmen that were left behind after the after the, the killing of the cop. And he subsequently kills the henchmen and he steals the heroin. Well, why would a, you know, an alien want human drugs? But we're, we'll get into that. So he ends up killing them with this disc that he shoots out of his out of his uh, gauntlet on his wrist. A la Predator. I think this movie came out in 1987. I think this came out right before Predator. Either 87 or 88. Somebody correct me. As I, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. So this disc, it flies around the air and it just cuts everybody's throats pretty much. They're all decimated and it winds up being stuck in a corner somewhere to be found later on. So then, of course, here comes Jack Kane, a.k.a. Dolph Lundgren. He sees his partner is dead, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the crime scene's taped off. You know, he's despondent because his partner is dead. Here comes the, the cavalry, uh, the captain. Then the feds come in. Okay, so the feds come in. They pretty much make a deal with the local law enforcement to provide one of their guys as a chaperone to Jack Kane during this investigation. Okay, so moving forward. Excuse me. All right, so come to find out this alien he likes to run around and basically pump people full of heroin, and then he extracts the endorphins. Okay, so what happens is it's explained in the movie that a, a heroin stimulates the pituitary, it stimulates the pituitary gland, causing the gland to create endorphins. Now, uh, to this race of beings, endorphins is a highly uh, rare, sought-after drug. Okay, but of course, the humans don't have the capability to, to, to synthesize or produce this. So basically, this creature came all the way to Earth to basically kill humans by pumping them full of heroin and extracting the endorphins out of their brains to sell on the intergalactic black market. Okay, so, uh, you know, so then he kills people here and there, right? He's making his rounds. Of course, Jack Kane is is trying to figure out what happened with his partner. That they blame that now the feds blame the cops for the missing heroin. Okay, so now what ends up happening is uh, Jack Kane and the fed partner of his they go back to the crime scene, and Jack is like, "I'm trying to figure out how does you know a blade cut this clean and bounce around from place to place to place." So they end up finding the disc stuck in a speaker. It's attracted to magnets. 
So then Jack Kane takes a speaker to a university uh, professor who studies the, the, the disc uh, and its properties. And, it's, you know, they conclude it's not alien. It's not I mean, it's not human, but it's definitely something foreign because there, there's no humanly possible weapon like this can exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so now the white boys have put a hit out on Jack Kane because they suspect that he has stolen the heroin. And then there's a subplot between Jack Kane and the coroner because they're, that's his love interest, yada, 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 which is, you know, subplot stuff. Now, uh, out of the nowhere, in comes the second alien played by Jay Billis. He's the cop. Okay, so he's on the hunt for the blonde alien played by Matisse. All right, so they do their little cat and mouse. They got these calicos. They shoot back and forth with high explosive rounds. And they're running through explosives. And the, I mean, these guys are just huge, 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 huge. Just big. I think Jay Billis is 6'8. Matias is 6'5. But because of the boots they wore from the costumes, of course, they're pushing seven feet easily. All right. So um, they're doing that cat and mouse thing. So then the professor, they go back to the, to the professor and, and he explains how the disc works. Now he has the disc in the middle of like maybe a tripod of a. Uh, a tuning fork. And he says, look, because the feds like he doesn't believe none of this stuff. The, 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 the doctor's like, or the professor's like, don't touch it. It's in a negative zero field. And they're like, well, what does that mean? He said, this thing is attracted to magnets. And then, of course, they're like, well, how does it how does it kill humans? So the fed guy says, well, humans have uh, give off small amounts of electromagnetic um, electromagnetic frequencies, whatever. So basically, in theory, what you could do is tune this disc to human frequency for it to go off, you know, to when you shoot at the, the human to kill. It's a it's a, a kill frequency device. Right. You set the device to, toward your target, certain human, a certain frequency, and it can kill them. Sounds like things we've heard before. Right. OK. So then they leave. Uh, the white boys follow Jack. Uh, at one point, the alien, the blonde alien goes to the uh, to the professor takes his disc back uh he's still collecting more drugs right via you know pumped up bodies or whatever and so then there's this cat and mouse and then they finally figure out they're dealing with aliens at one point the cop the space cop gets injured in a shootout with the blondie and he ends up in the back seat of jack kane's car his partner shows up now the the, the killer part was you know, the feds were brought in the feds know about this stuff they kind of keep trying to keep everything hush hush at one point uh jack kane's partner is he's so green that he believes everything his, his inspector tells him he's like yo bring me the weapon bring me the disc and you know you're gonna get a promotion you know we, we got everything taken care of you don't even know what the what the narrative is so at one point uh his partner the fed inspector you know summons him to a meeting and so then what's going to happen is his boss tries to kill him. Jack Kane shoots the, the inspector, saves his life because clearly this dude operates like a spook, like a CIA spook. OK, so now uh, they're on, on they're on they're on the lookout for the blondie, because before the space cop dies, he says, you must stop him. He's a space drug dealer. Uh, if you don't kill him, uh, there'll be more to come back and they'll slaughter your people. Uh, it's called Farsi, right? The drug, the endorphin. It's called Farsi or Barky, whatever, and it's highly prized in 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 in, in the intergalactic black market. Okay, 
go figure humans, right? So then they go to the waterfront and uh, they pretty much duke it out. Uh, Dolph ends up killing the, 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 the alien. You know, the, the, if you for those who saw the movie, because he always says, I come in peace, I come in peace. Like that's like the human greeting form. Like that's going to lower everybody's weapon. Uh, guards like, oh, yo, I come in peace. Oh, OK, you're cool, even though you're not from this planet. All right. So then the, the iconic line is, you know, I come in peace. And then Dolph shoots the gun at him and says, you go in pieces, asshole. And uh, there's your movie. I just thought the two points with the endorphins. Right. You 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 put people in the, in, in, in a heightened state of fear. Right. To suck out. Well, what we know is the, the adrenochrome, what they do with the children. Right. So kind of foretelling. And then with the magnets. And these uh, the vibration and, and the frequencies of human fre- frequencies. So I thought that was a pretty interesting little tidbit. Not the most gem-filled movie, but those two points to me stuck out. Okay, now there's three main topics tonight with a bunch of subtopics. So the first topic we're gonna run through. We got a lot to, to talk about tonight. I'm not gonna really uh, waste waste words with you, you know, with you guys like that. So the first topic, we're going to talk about CRISPR. Yes, CRISPR, the gene editing entity, uh, they're at it again. So uh, the next trick for CRISPR is gene editing pain away. So now the new approach to pain eradication, which mimics the rare DNA mutation. uh, Let's see. Okay, okay. The research in which CRISPR was used to temporarily block a key molecule in pain-transmitting neurons in the spinal cord of mice was described in a a preprint paper published in July. The company didn't want to comment before the report is formally published, but the idea is to inject the cerebral spinal fluid with viral particles carrying a modified version of CRISPR designed to interrupt pain signals. And the first test of CRISPR gene therapies on humans began only recently. This year, CRISPR therapeutics started treating patients with sickle cell anemia. Now, who is more afflicted with sickle cell anemia than anybody on this planet? That would be black people. <laughs> now, I can't be mad at black people with sickle cell if they sign up for this. I can't fault them at all. If you know anybody with sickle cell, you, can, you can't even imagine... Uh, the the pain that they're in in a constant state of pain. T. Boz is is one uh, famous sickle cell sufferer. Uh, their late great prodigy, rest in peace. He was a sickle cell uh, sufferer. So had this technology been around maybe five or six years ago, maybe ten years ago, uh, you know, it just probably could have helped them, uh, you know, d- better deal with with their pain afflictions when their when their sickle cell flares up. Now. Okay, so plans try to, to, to reverse an inherited bi- a blinding disease. Both the programs involve altering DNA sequences in a person's genome so that needed genes are turned on. A pain treatment would extend CRISPR therapies into far more common conditions. About 20% of Americans have chronic pain, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The project also highlights how by mining genetic oddities, scientists can identify the causes of certain unusual people's physical superpowers, listen closely, and use gene editing to grant them to others. This sounds like the boys. I'm talking the boys from Hulu. 
it, or no Amazon Prime. If you have an Amazon Prime subscription and you have not watched the first season of The Boys, you are doing yourself a total disservice. That series, uh, to me, by far, is the best superhero comic book series out right now. What ended up happening in uh, The Boys, basically, the Compound 7 was administered to them while they were in the wounds. This is why the, the 7 refers to some some genome or some key molecule in, in the compound itself. And if some, if you were given too much, it would kill you. If you're given too little, it it fuck you up, whatever. So, uh, and I'm going off on a tangent, but the boys, this the Super Seven, right? They all were uh, given this compound at, at very uh, early stages of development uh, of gestation, and they all inherently have pretty much different superpowers for the most part. Homelander is my favorite uh, Superman-based uh, comic book character. I implore you uh, to get the, 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 the Amazon Prime subscription just to watch this season. The one brother, he's like the Flash. They call him AJ. This nigga, <laughs> he's addicted to, comp, to, to the Compound 7. So he's like a junkie. But this dude, is he runs. He, he's super fast. Um, there's a whole political thing behind it. Uh, Homelander is basically Superman uh, with no weaknesses. None like think Brightburn, think uh, Superman, uh, Superboy Prime, Superman Prime. Homelander is the most conflicted, evil, charismatic version based of Superman that you will, we will probably ever see on a small screen. The dude, whoever plays Homelander, plays him to perfection. And I, at the end of the day, I'm I was rooting for a Homelander. The key part in the, the entire first season. The only scene that, that really fucking matters in the entire first season of The Boys is the airplane scene. Now, I read the comics as a, as a younger, a youngster. Now, in the comics, it differentiates a little bit from the series. Uh, but in the, in, in, in the series, the plane is going down, right? No, no, no. The plane is hijacked by uh, Arabs, right? A la 9-11. They're over the, coast, they're over the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, Queen Maeve, she's based off Wonder Woman. And, and Queen Maeve and Homelander show up. They deal with the uh, with the terrorist in 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 the the back part of the plane. There's another terrorist in in the cockpit. So as they make their way towards the cockpit, there's one more terrorist. He done already killed one pilot. He has the gun to the head of the other pilot. And um, Homelander is very fond of using his uh, laser vision, heat vision, whatever you want to call it. So he ends up shooting uh, the laser, the heat vision at the at the uh, terrorist. He ends up frying the electrical control panel, the board for the plane. Of course, the pilot is dead. So Queen Maeve's like, hey, um, you can you can fix this. Right. And he's like, have you seen the control panel? It's destroyed. The plane's going down. You need to come with me because I can't save these people. They're just, they're just, they're just asked out. I mean, he's literally just that. He's that cold. She's like, "What do you mean? You, 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 you can do this. You can fly, and you, you're strong." And he, and he gave all the legitimate reasons for why it would not work. He said something like, "If he tried to do this, he would punch a hole in the in the uh, in the hull, and it would decompress and kill everybody." He gave legitimate, uh, real world reasonings as to why he could not pull off a Superman and save this plane from going into the ocean. So they walk back 
into the uh, the rest of the plane. And everybody's like, oh, my God, thank you. You know, thank you for saving us. And we're going to be all right, right? And he's like, no, um, y'all not going to be all right. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? You you have to save us. What, what do you mean? He's like, no, listen, I can't. I can't do it. And and Queen May was like, well, can we do like a chain, a human chain? And he's like, a human chain at 40,000 feet? No. And, of course, uh, Homelander doesn't want to be bothered. But he legitimately, legitimately gave – his reasons were good. Like, they were legit reasons why he couldn't save the plane. Of course, the people are getting upset. And and then you see the sense of entitlement with, with the with the passengers. Like, what do you mean? You have to save us. Like, you're, you're fucking Homelander. And he's getting upset. So he's like – Queen Maeve, let's go. And she's conflicted because she wants to save the people, but she can't fly, right? So, I mean, even her powers are limited. Um, so he's like, look, we need to go. You need to come with me right now. So the people are kind of getting, they're like crouching towards Homelander. And Homelander flashes his, his laser vision. He says, back the fuck up. I will fucking burn you all. <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was classic. <laughs> That's some shit I would have said, right? So he flashes his heat vision at everybody and they're all like, oh, shit. And um, he, t- he tells Maeve, he says, Maeve, I- I'm not I'm going to tell you one more time. Let's go. And the one lady before they go out the hole of the side of the plane is one lady's like, take my daughter. Please just take my daughter. Don't worry about me. Take my daughter. She's trying to give her daughter off to Maeve and Maeve's trying to take her daughter. And Homelander's like, no, leave her. Oh, it was it was a gut wrenching scene. Um, let me tell you, pay the subscription just for that episode alone. I assure you, it is well worth. You will never see anything like that on Marvel. Will never show you uh, 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 a scene like that. DC, not this new DC. Oh, DC, maybe. DC on a Zack Snyder would have shown it to you. Not this new DC. But anywho. The lady's trying to give her daughter off to off to Queen Maeve. Queen Maeve grabs the girl. Homeland is like, no, let's go. They fly out. He's holding Maeve. And as he's holding Maeve, you just watch the plane go down into the fucking uh into the ocean. Oh my God. It, brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, now getting back to the article in hand. I'm sorry for that tangent, but it just brought out it, it, everything correlates. Okay. So now um a scramble for a new generation of pain treatments began when scientists zeroed in on a gene called SC9 or sorry, SCN9A, uh, which makes a molecule present in nerves. And that is the molecule is called uh, NAV 1.7. That is a key player in transmitting b- uh, pain to the brain. Uh, evidence for the gene's centric role came from people with st- uh, strange inherited syndromes. Some mutations in the gene cause people to feel more pain than others. All right. Um, uh, the clear effect of the gen- genetic differences, more pain on the one hand, no pain if the mutation inactivated the gene, uh, drew an intense uh, interest from drug companies. Uh, the gene has been called a perfect example of how valuable drug targets can be discovered by studying people with rare traits. Now, here's the problem with when you if you eradicate pain, pain tells you there's something wrong. OK, now I've known I knew a little girl, her all her nerves. Uh, were not functioning like she had no sense of pain this girl burned herself st- stabbed herself she would hurt herself 
on purpose to see if she could feel pain. She could feel no pain because her nerves, she had a genetic defect and her nerves um, did not, did not transmit the pain to where, to, to where the injured, the injured part of the body was. You need pain to alert you that something is wrong. It's really just that simple. That's all what pain is there for. I know it's uncomfortable and we don't want to go through it, but the body has a way of protecting itself and to uh, give yourself a heads up when something is not right. Now, could you imagine a bunch of people running around here with no pain receptors uh, or, or permanent nerve damage that can't feel any pain? I mean, because there, there's internal pain. Uh, if you hadn't had, um, if your appendix burst, how would you know? You just be sitting there being poisoned to death slowly but surely. If you had colon cancer, or early stages of colon cancer, you wouldn't know because you're not feeling that little ping and ting in, in, in your stomach. Um, migraine sufferers, you know, if you had bleeding on the brain, you would not know because there's no pain. So this is a, a slippery, slippery slope. Um, you need pain basically to let you know that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. So I, I, you know, and as for me as a pain sufferer, because I have sciatica and a curved lower lumbar, um, I, every day I'm in pain, but um, I don't know if I would sign up for this just just to, to eradicate the pain, because like I said, without it, I'm not going to know if, they, if there's anything else wrong with me, you know, so pain ha is necessary. Pain is very, very necessary. <clears throat> All right. So getting back. Uh, to the article, our researchers have tried using gene therapy to dampen the activity of NAV 1.7 before. It was attempted in 2005 using another gene modulating technique. And at least two companies, Voyager Therapeutics and Coda Biotherapeutics, are exploring potential treatments. Now, the new report, however, is the first to use CRISPR to treat pain in mice. The animal data suggests you will still feel a burning kettle, but the pain might be much diminished. Uh, he calls the use of CRISPR to treat uh, pain a major advance. Now, there are some downsides to fooling with pain. People with no DNA pain mutation have a limited sense of smell, and without pain, they don't know when they are injured. A number of members of the Pakistani family were limping from broken limbs. Others had lost part of their tongues. They had bitten off. Yikes. <clears throat> Uh, new pain control tactics are likely to draw interest from the military, which is looking at technologies that would let soldiers keep moving, keep shooting and keep communicating for days after an injury. According to the abstract of an upcoming talk by Peter Murray of the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command, Murray writes that the question is, can we create an, an analgesic that can treat severe post-traumatic pain that doesn't interfere with cognition or motor control? In 2017, Vladimir Putin told students at a youth festival in Sochi that genetic engineering could create soldiers who feel no pain, no fear, which could be scarier than a nuclear bomb. Universal soldiers told us this. I forget what year that came out. Dolph Lundgren once again and John Claude Van Damme. Universal soldier. They took a bunch of dead Vietnam vets, put them on ice uh, and, and wiped their minds. These guys could swim for miles, no pain, no, no nothing. And this is what you're looking at, a bunch of universal. Could you imagine a, a bunch of universal soldiers, a universal cop soldiers kicking in your door and you, you just be asked to fuck out? So uh, that is what CRISPR is up to once again. Uh, um, second topic. 
John Dillinger. This is interesting. This is interesting. John Dillinger. Well, why John Dillinger? Because the family of John Dillinger believes uh, they the, the feds killed the wrong guy. Uh, let me pull up the article. Bear with me. I got it. Oh, here we go. All right. The body of slain 1930s gangster John Dillinger to be exhumed in Indiana. Uh, the body of notorious 1930s gangster John Dillinger is, is expected to be exhumed in September at an Indianapolis cemetery, but it could be a tough job because his grave is encased in concrete. Digging up the remains more than 85 years after Dillinger was killed by FBI agents could also resolve conspiracy theories that the man, some considered a hero during the Great, the Great Depression, isn't buried in his marked grave, said Susan Sutton, a historian with the Indiana Historical Society. Among the tales is that Dillinger's family tricked the FBI into shooting the wrong man. Mm. The Indiana State Department of Health approved a permit July 3rd sought by Dillinger's nephew, Michael C. Thompson, to have the body exhumed from the Crown uh, Hill Cemetery. Um, the permit doesn't give a reason for the request, and Thompson couldn't immediately be reached for comment. However, Dan Silberman of A&E Network said the exhumation will be covered as part of a documentary on the Dillinger for the History Channel. Indiana Health Department spokeswoman Jenny O'Malley said that based on the permit, the agency expects Dillinger's body will be exhumed and reinterred on September 16th, the date listed on the document. But digging up Dillinger's grave might prove a difficult task because days after his son's funeral, Dillinger's father had the casket reburied under a protective cap of concrete and scrap iron topped by four reinforced concrete slabs. Well, goddamn. I think they're going to have a hard time getting through that, Sutton said. The reason for the concrete encased grave was to thwart would-be vandals, she said, citing Crown Hill History, Spirit, and Sanctuary, Sanctuary in 2013 book. The Historical Society published about the cemetery's history. The main fear was that someone would come up and dig up the grave and either desecrate the corpse or steal it. The Dillingers had actually been offered money to lend out his body for exhibits, so they were concerned. The Indianapolis-born Dillinger was one of America's most notorious criminals. The FBI says Dillinger killed uh, gang, the Dillinger's gang killed 10 people as they pulled off a bloody string of bank robberies across the Midwest in the 1930s. Oh, shoot. Oh, you know what? Hold on. Give me one moment. Uh, recents. Okay, I'm back. Wow. Okay, no problem, no problem. Okay. Okay. We, yes, I do. No, let me hop back. Let me hop back in. I'm, I'm cooking right now. <laughs> okay. 
Dillinger was never convicted of murder and he was lauded by some for robbing banks during the Great Depression as many Americans lost their homes and farms to foreclosure, Sutton said. Uh, so somebody who had, as maybe people would say now, stuck it to the banker would easily become a folk hero, uh, she said. He was also known by some people to be very polite even while he was stealing. It's an odd combination. Dillinger was awaiting trial in the slain of an East Chicago police officer when he escaped from jail in Crown Point, Indiana in March 1934 with a gun carved out of wood. While on the run, he underwent plastic surgery to alter his face and was said to have tried to remove his fingerprints with acid. Dillinger was portrayed by Johnny Depp in the 2009 movie Public Enemies, which was a very good movie, by the way, was fatally shot uh, in July 1934. By FBI agents outside the Biograph uh, Theater in Chicago after he was betrayed by a woman who became known in the papers as the Lady in Red. Crown Hill Cemetery spokeswoman Crystal King said the cemetery has no information about the plans to exhume Dillinger, whose tomb is an, is an attraction at the hilltop grave at Indianapolis's near North Side. Uh, okay, okay. That was interesting, especially the, the facial reconstruction part. I heard stories about that. I didn't know about the acid We're trying to burn off his fingerprints. Also, um, real quick about uh, Billy the Kid. The the, the 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 I guess the not well known story of Billy the Kid and his and his gang. Billy the Kid was actually hired by the bankers to rob their banks for the insurance money. Okay, that's I, I guess that's an old, lesser known fact. When it came to all these uh, outlaws, um, you know, these guys robbing banks and stagecoaches, they were actually hired by the bankers like Wells Fargo, for example, was one of the main uh, culprits in hiring gangsters or, or bank robbers to rob their properties so they can cash in on the uh, insurance money. But what ended up happening was a lot of the bank robbers like Billy the Kid, they went rogue and they went a little bit too far. And then they had to send the sheriffs on their asses. So that's a little known fact. Uh, Billy the Kid, he was actually hired by uh, the bankers to rob the banks. <clears throat> so, all right. Uh, that's article number two. All right. Oh, yes. This next article, holy cow. Uh, very, very disturbing. Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor. Thank you for the, uh, the, the donation, uh, the Super Chat CP30. Charles Taylor. This dude, for those that don't know, this this dude here. A, um, <laughs> all right, so let me get into this article real quick. This is, I, I'm going to get the old article and I'm going to read the new article. Okay. A commander in Charles Taylor's militia has told a war crimes trial that the former Liberian president ordered his fighters to eat their enemies including U.N. peacekeepers as a means of terrorizing the population. Joseph Zigzag Marza, chief of operations for Taylor, who, who at the time was, went on the trial, went on trial at The Hague, also testified that he oversaw horrific crimes such as cutting the babies out of pregnant women and that the former president told his men that their enemies are no longer human beings. Taylor. 59 has pleaded not guilty to 11 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity at a special international court over his collaboration with anti-government rebels in Sierra Leone, which borders Liberia. 
And once again, I'll get up to speed. I'm just reading this article real quick. Uh, but in establishing the record of Taylor's leadership of a, of a rebellion in his own country before he finally won power in 1997, Marza this week described a reign of terror. Marza, who led the death squad group of killers, said many of the victims of cannibalism were members of the Kron people of the then Liberian president, Samuel Dole, who Taylor was attempting to overthrow. But those eaten also included soldiers from UN and West African Ecomog peacekeeping forces. He said we should eat them, even the UN white people. He said we could use them as pork to eat, Marza told the court. We ate a few Ecomog soldiers, but not many. But many were executed, about 68. He said, Taylor said, eating people set an example for the people to be afraid. We got damn right they would be. Taylor's defense lawyer asked Marza how the fighters would prepare a human being for the pot. Here we go. The former commander described decapitating, carving up, cleaning, and cooking corpses seasoned with salt and pepper. I quote, we slit your throat, butcher you, throw away the head, take the flesh, and put it in a pot. Charles Taylor knows that, said Marza. Uh, oh, did the station go back? At, hello, Ra? Oh, my gosh. Hold on. Oh, okay, okay, okay. This message is over. My bad. Okay. Okay. My bad. My bad. All right. Uh, he told the court how rebel leaders who fell out with Taylor met a terrible end. The former commander described dismembering the body of another rebel leader known as Superman and then taking his hand to Taylor, who gave him cigarette money in return. Marza said the pair then cooked and ate Superman's liver. Marza said that he, he had killed so many men, women and children, he had lost count. He described drowning and bludgeoning babies to death and murdering women with pen knives. He said that when he was serving with Taylor's Rebels National Patriotic Front of Liberia, he had established checkpoints on roads using human intestines and severed heads mounted on sticks. Asked whether Taylor knew about this, Marza replied, he was aware. He made us understand that you have to play with human blood so that enemies would be afraid. Asked how he felt about these actions now, Marza said, I regret nothing. Although Taylor is not on trial for those crimes, the testimony that he encouraged barbaric acts will undercut his attempts to distance himself from rebels in Sierra Leone, who he supported as Liberia's president and who were also responsible for crimes such as mutilation, mass rape and murder. Taylor is accused, among other things, of laundering funds for the Revolutionary United Front by selling diamonds mined by forced labor and using the proceeds to buy web weapons smuggled to the rebels in Sierra Leone. Marza testified that he took weapons stored at Taylor's presidential mansion and delivered them to Sierra Leone in return for diamonds that he that he brought back to Taylor. The roof was notorious for hacking the limbs off of civilians in the 11 year civil war that ended in 2002 after British military intervention. Taylor was overthrown five years ago and fled into exile into Nigeria, which handed him over to the Special International Court for Sierra Leone under pressure from the U.S. and other countries. If y'all remember back around the 2000s, all you heard was Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. Uh, that was this nigga here. It was him doing this, all this crazy shit. <laughs> 
Okay, so Taylor's trial was moved to The Hague because of fears his presence in Sierra Leone could renew instability. Now, let me get you up to speed to the new article. Uh, shoot. Fast facts, fast facts. Uh-oh, I lost the page. Bear with me, bear with me. Charles Taylor. Fast facts, where is it? Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Okay, here's some facts about Charles, T Charles Taylor. He was born in Arthington, Liberia. He was married, got some kids, education, Bentley College, Massachusetts, BA Economics, 1977. Okay, Taylor stole or diverted nearly $100 million of Liberia's funds while in power. Taylor used the money to buy houses, cars, and illegal weapons while fighting the Civil War. 1972, moved to the United States to study. 1980, returns to Liberia and joins the administration of Samuel Doe, who comes into power after a coup. 1983, Flees to the U.S. after Doe accuses Taylor of corruption and stealing over $900,000 from the Liberian government. 1984. Is arrested in Boston. The court holds him to wait for extradition orders from the Liberian government. 1985. Escapes from jail. <laughs> Go figure. Authorities believe he crosses into Mexico and then heads to, Liberia, uh, to Libya where Colonel Muammar Gaddafi gives him asylum. Well, I'll be goddamn. 1989. While in, uh, while in Libya, Taylor forms the militia group National Patriotic Front of Liberia. 1990 through 1996, a civil war is fought in Liberia. More than 150,000 people are killed and more than half of the population become refugees. I remember that shit like it was yesterday. 1996, a peace pact brokered by the international community calls for elections. 1997, Taylor is elected president of Liberia in a special election. 2000, rebels in Liberia begin a struggle against Taylor's government. 2003, Taylor is indicted for crimes against humanity by United Nations court. Charges include murder, enslavement, and the recruitment of child soldiers. Beast is no nation. Uh, if you need a reference, uh, the movie with uh, Idris Elba, uh, Netflix, came out a couple years ago well, about child soldiers. I remember uh, it was Striker and Agu. Striker! Agu! And then I think Agu died, right? Well, I forget which one. I think it was Agu. Nope. Striker died. Striker died. Striker got killed. And it was the saddest shit because Striker got shot in the stomach. And Agu was carrying him, right? Through through the jungle. And then he was talking to Agu. Or he was talking to, he was talking to him. And he wouldn't respond. He laid him down. And he, 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 you can see he got shot in the stomach. Oh, my God. It was a sad. That was a sad movie. That was a sad, sad scene. Beast of No Nations. And, and, and the fucked up part was as much as people loved Idris Elba in that role, they praised that movie. And I'm sitting here like, OK, there's, there's a reason why they're praising this movie so much. Well, guess what ended up happening? The character Idris Elba played was a goddamn pedophile. OK, he 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 make the boys pleasure him and then what would they would do to each other they would cut themselves on the side of the face and then pack the wound with heroin as a as a marker as uh we got a caller already uh just when i was cooking what's going on caller with bracket Peace, peace. Yes, sir. 
Teku, that's what's up. That's what's up. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Um, yes. Uh, if you remember when Beast of No Nation came out, uh, people were, it was just like moonlight. It, they were heaping praise upon praise, and they were talking, Idra may, you know, he, he may get nominated for an Oscar for this. But yeah, the dude, the character he played was the pedophile. So um, <laughs> moving on. Okay. Let me see where do I leave off. Okay. 2003, Rebels advance into Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. 2003 again. President George Bush makes a statement asking Taylor to step down for the good of the Liberian people. 2003 again, Taylor submits his, le his letter of resignation, uh, step steps down as president, hands over power to Vice President Moses Blah, and leaves for Nigeria where he is granted asylum. 2003 again, Interpol puts out a global arrest warrant for Taylor. 2006, the indictment against Taylor is amended and reduced to 11 counts. 2006 again, Taylor is recaptured and taken into custody by border guards in northern Nigeria as he tried to leave the country with his wife. 2006 again, Taylor appears at a UN-backed tribunal in Sierra Leone and pleads not guilty to 11 war crime charges. Taylor is transferred to The Hague and the Netherlands for trial. 2007, Taylor boycotts the opening of his trial, calling it a charade in a letter read by his attorney. 2008, Taylor appears in court as his war crime trial resumes. 2010, the prosecution, which rested its case against Taylor in 2009, acts to reopen its case. This is done to allow, listen to this, the for the testimony of model Naomi Campbell and actress Mia Farrell regarding blood diamonds that Taylor may have given Tam uh, Campbell in 1997. Naomi Campbell. Okay, another caller. Caller, what's going on with Bracken? Brother, I'm here. What's going on with you, brother? What's on your mind tonight? Man, no, I, I had to just call it real quick. You know, that also made me think about the last King of Scotland, what you was just talking about. That's right. Forrest Whitaker. Yes, the, the, the late, great Idi Amin. Yes, sir. I appreciate that. I thought the same thing too. I I I, I question everybody's level of comprehension that that came at that came for me. But you know, I'm 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 here for it. You know, so uh, it's it's funny to it me. Like, yeah, it was just like you know, I feel like you know, because for a while, you know, you have been sounding a lot of niggas online, and people are in their feelings about it, and it's just like I feel like it's just like man, it's like y'all really don't be that petty and like really try to hang on to every word like that because like miss the whole context of what you were saying. That's usually what they that, that's what usually what My man, brother, thank you so much. I appreciate that. No you, sir, you too. That's what's up. See, I do it for the people. 
I do it for the people. I do it for y'all. All right, let's get back to cooking. Um, <clears throat> okay, okay, okay. 2011, Taylor's trial concludes. 2012, Taylor is found guilty of aiding and abetting war crimes in Sierra Leone. At a sentencing hearing, Taylor says that terrible things happened in Sierra, Sierra Leone for which there can be no justification, but his role in the conflict was much different than represented. He says, I quote, I pushed the peace process hard, contrary to how I have been portrayed in this court. 2012, Taylor is sentenced to 50 years in prison. 2013, Taylor's lawyer argued in an appeal of Taylor's conviction for war crimes. 2013, Taylor's appeal is dismissed. His sentence stands. This man is doing 50 years at the roughly of the age of 50. So they called his um his 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 soldiers, they were called, what were they called? They were called the cannibal soldiers. They were called the cannibal soldiers. Uh, so that is Charles Taylor, um, Liberia, Sierra Leone. Holy shit. Now that was that was eye-opening. All right, my next article. Oh shit. Okay, this one should be a doozy. We're gonna talk about Transformers. One of the first Transformers. I don't mean Optimus Prime. I don't mean Megatron. I don't mean Starscream. I don't mean Bumblebee. I mean the Transformers. All right. Little known story uh, of Lily Elby. Lily Elby was born Einer Wegener and spent her entire life trying to choose between the man she was born as and the woman she wanted to become. Okay. Uh, let's see. Einer Wegener didn't know how unhappy his life was in his own skin until he met Lily Elby. Lily was carefree and wild, a thoughtless, flighty, very superficially minded woman who, despite her womanly ways, opened Einer's mind to the life he never knew he was missing. Einer met Lily shortly after marrying his wife, Gerda, in 1904. Gerda Wegener was, gifted, was a gifted painter an illustrator who drew Art Deco-style portraits of women dressed in lavish gowns and, interestingly, ensembles for fashion magazines. Now, during one of his sessions, a model who had she intended to draw failed to show up. So a friend of hers, an actress named Anna Larson, suggested Einer sit in for her instead. Einer initially refused, but at the, at the insistence of his wife, at a loss for a model and delighted to dress him in costume, he consented as he sat and posed for his wife, dressed in a ballerina costume of satin and lace. Larson remarked at how good he looked. We'll call you Lily, she said. And Lily LB was born. For the next 25 years, Einer would no longer be, feel an individual like a soul man, but like two people trapped in a single body fighting for dominance. One of them, Einar Wegener, a landscape painter and a man devoted to his headstrong wife. The other, Lily Elby, a carefree woman whose only wish was to bear a child. Eventually, Einar Wegener would give way to Lily Elby, the woman he always felt he was meant to be. He would go on to become the first person to undergo the new and experimental gender reassignment surgery and pave the way for a new era of understanding the LMNOP. <laughs> in her autobiography Lily a portrait of the first sex change LB described the moment that Einer donned the ballerina outfit as the catalyst for her transformation I quote I cannot deny strange as it might sound 
that I enjoy myself in this disguise. I liked the feel of soft women's clothing. I felt very much at home in them from the first moment. Whether she knew of her husband's inner turmoil at the time or was simply enchanted by the idea of plain make-believe, Gerda encouraged Einar to dress as Lily when they went out. They would dress in expensive gowns and furs and attend balls and social events. They would tell people that Lily was Einar's sister, visiting from out of town, a model whom Gerda was using for her illustrations. Eventually, those closest to LB began to wonder whether or not Lily was an act or not, as she seemed far more comfortable as Lily LB than she has ever had as Einar Wegener. Soon, LB confided in his wife that she felt she'd always been Lily and that Einar was gone. Despite the unconventionality of their union, Gerda remained by LB's side and over time became her biggest advocate. The couple moved to Paris where LB could live openly as a woman with less scrutiny than she had in Denmark. Gerda continued to paint using LB as her model and introducing her as her friend Lily rather than her husband Einar. Life in Paris was far better than it ever had been in Denmark, but soon Lily LB found that her happiness had run out. Though her clothing depicted a woman, her body did not. With an outward appearance that matched the one inside, how could she live truly as a woman? Burdened by feelings that she couldn't name, LB soon slipped into a deep depression. In the pre-war, uh, in the pre-war world in which Lily LB lived, there was no concept of, of transgenderism. There was hardly even a concept of homosexuality, which was the closest thing she could think of to the way she felt, but still not enough. Then in the early 1920s, a German doctor named Magnus Hirschfeld opened a clinic known as the German Institute for Sexual Science. At his institute, he claimed to be studying something called transsexualism. Finally, there was a word, a concept for what LB felt. To further her excitement, Magnus had hypothesized a surgery that could permanently transform her body from male to female. Without a second thought, she relocated to Dresden, Germany to have the surgery performed. Over the next two years, Lily Elby underwent four major experimental surgeries, some of which were the first of their kind. One had been attempted in part once before. A surgical castration was performed first followed by a transpl uh, transplantation of a pair of ovaries. A third unspecified surgery took place shortly after that, though its exact purpose was never reported. The medical procedures, if they were documented, remain unknown in their specifics today as the Library of Institute for Sexual Research was destroyed by the Nazis in 1933. That's not true. All the files from that institute Follow them in Operation Paperclip over here to the U.S. Just want to put that out there. Okay. The surgeries were revolutionary for their first time, not only because it was the first time they'd been done, but because synthetic sex hormones were only in very early stages, still mostly theoretical stages of development. Following the first three surgeries, Lily Elby was able to change her name legally and obtain a passport that denoted her sex as female. She chose the name Elby for her new surname after the river that flowed through the country of her rebirth. However, because she was now a woman, the king of Denmark avoided her marriage to Gerda. Due to Elby's new life, Gerda went her own way, determined to let Elby live her own life. And indeed, she did, living un unencumbered by her warring personalities and eventually accepting a marriage proposal from an old friend. Now, there was just one more thing she needed to do before she could get married and start her life as a, start her life as a wife. 
her final surgery. The most experimental and controversial of all, LB's final surgery involved the transplantation of a uterus into her body, along with the construction of an artificial vagina. Though doctors now know that the surgery would never be ever successful, LB hoped it would allow her to realize her dream of becoming a mother. <laughs> God damn. Unfortunately, her dreams were cut short. Following the surgery, she fell ill. As transplant rejection drugs were still 50 years from being perfected, despite the knowledge that she would never recover from her illness, she pinned letters to her family members describing the happiness she felt as after finally becoming the woman she'd always wanted to be. I quote, that I, Lily, am vital and have a right to life. I have proved by living for 14 months. She wrote in a letter to a friend, it may be said that 14 months is not much, but they seem to me like a whole and happy human life. That is a goddamn tragedy if I've ever read one. My goodness. Lily LB, reportedly the first, the first, the first transformer. <laughs> Jeez. All right. All right. All right. So we're going we're to get into one of our main topics tonight. That is the black shuck. The Black Shuck. What is the Black Shuck? Well, if you watch the movie Annabelle Comes Home, and if you've ever heard of Ed and, and Lorraine Warren, uh, if you watch any of the uh, Annabelle movies, the Conjuring movies, you know Ed and Lorraine Warren are synonymous with this weird, spooky shit. Okay, um, their case files uh, was one. It was a source of inspiration for Annabelle Comes Home. Uh, actually, those uh, those actual case files from their actual files, because you know they're both dead now. And the black shuck was one of the case files featured in the movie. And I, you know, being a somebody that likes that type of, my interest was piqued, and I wanted to look further into this, the black shuck. And so here we go. His name was Bill Ramsey. Is Bill Ramsey okay now? Born and bred in Essex, seaside town of South End, the first inkling of trouble came when William Ramsey was just nine years old. Like any normal child, he was outside in his back garden when he began to feel strange. It was deep into one Saturday afternoon in 1952 when an icy blast of frigid cold swept over him. Perspiration froze on his skin and a foul stench came close to making him vomit. The bewildered youngster only had two things on his mind, running away to a life on the ocean wave and wolves. By this time, he was close to the garden fence and only the calls of his mother brought him out of whatever had gripped him. However, something else took complete control of him instead. Intense and pure rage had installed itself firmly within his psyche. Using this and the adrenaline-fueled strength he now possessed, he had uprooted a fence post with the fence still attached and was swinging it like a club. Not even his parents could easily remove the post with their bare hands. What the young child did next made both of his parents flee back into the rel relative safety of their home, leaving Bill isolated outside. Bill Ramsey placed the wire meshing into his mouth and began gnawing at it. The cold sensations returned and a low growl emanated from deep within him. Both of his parents remained inside the house until it was apparent that their son had calmed down considerably. For nearly 15 years after that terrifying incident, nothing even remotely similar happened in the life of Bill Ramsey. He had grown up, got married, and became a doting father of three. 
The first two years of his marriage, though, were plagued by nightmares. Each dream was the same, and the results ended up identical as well. Ramsey always awoke in a cold sweat and was overwhelmed by feelings of dread and unease. In his dream, he was always a few steps behind his wife, who would then turn to face him and run away in extreme terror. It was only in 1967 that these dreams ended, 18 months on. And Bill woke one night to hear what he thought was panting of a wild animal somewhere inside the bedroom. He was correct. It was Bill himself. Once again, there was a lull of activity in approximately 15 years. It was now 1983, and Bill was out with some friends at a local pub. After several drinks, Bill began to feel the same icy chills that first manifest much earlier in his life. He made an excuse and headed to the, to the lavatory. Once there, he checked himself in the mirror and saw a wolf looking back at him. This was just a precursor as to what was to happen on their way home. In the car ride home, and without any warning, Bill began to growl and immediately turned to his fellow passenger. Both hands twisted into claws, and Ramsey tried to bite the leg of his friend. The designated driver didn't panic. He brought the car to a stop, made attempts to get the raging Bill out of the back of the car. It took several minutes and quite a bit of effort to finally get Bill out of the, out of the backseat of the car, but now the frenzy had dissipated. Worse to come, but not for another 18 months, shortly before Christmas 1983, Bill begins to suffer from chest pains and thoughts immediately turned into a possible heart attack. Bill checked himself into the emergency room of the local hospital and was halfway through a blood pressure examination when he sank his teeth into the arm of the nurse and ran through the ward as a man possessed. Witnesses would later reveal that Bill had hunched his shoulders and both hands had curled into talons or claws and bared lips just like a rabid animal. Anyone that dared approach was knocked down easily with almost superhuman strength. It took quite a few people working as a team to finally subdue the rampaging man. A police officer managed to place handcuffs around Ramsey's wrist, but still that was not sufficient. A tranquilizer finally put an end to the outburst. The following morning, this tranquilizer had worn off, and so did the original transformation. After a hearty breakfast, the attending doctor listened to the whole story and recommended Bill uh, remain under observation. However, he was a voluntary patient and was fully entitled to check himself out. Bill did so, but was back within the span of two months. In January 1984, Bill had just finished a visit to his mother when he began to feel an attack coming on. He made it to the ho same hospital on the same terms of his previous visit. The attending nurse was alone with Ramsey in the emergency room and feared for her life once she told Ramsey that she was going to find a doctor. Ramsey threw to one side and lunged for an orderly. By chance, four police officers entered the hospital and immediately circled Ramsey. The officers and Ramsey had a standoff for a few seconds until Ramsey began snarling and growling on all fours. The policeman advanced on Ramsey, who defended himself with some vigor. One of the four police officers suffered a wound so severe that he ended up in the hospital for another four days. All four managed to handcuff Ramsey again. The short walk to the waiting, waiting squad car went off without incident as Ramsey had apparently regained his faculties. When he arrived at the local police station, they immediately summoned the police surgeon. Ramsey considered the suggestion of checking himself into a mental institution, but decided against it, citing the stigma that he might feel in the days to follow. Since he was clearly in control and rational, Ramsey was released. 
In the summer of 1987, he was back at the police station. This time, however, he was much more public-spirited, having made a citizen's arrest to a local teenage prostitute. He drove her to the station. The second that he parked his car, she fled into the station. Ramsey once again felt the now-familiar sensations surging from the middle of his chest. Just as a burly policeman off, uh, approached the car, the officer, considerably bigger than Ramsey, started to question him and made the mistake of gently touching Ramsey's arm. The wolf within him took immediate hold of Ramsey and the officer was thrown to the ground and was having the life choked out of him until help finally came. Ramsey was so wild that it took a dozen policemen to hold him down and two injections to finally restrain him. For the next 10 days, countless MRIs, x-rays, and psychiatric tests could not determine what was wrong with Ramsey. Clearly, there was some issue that needed resolving. Nobody should really switch from mild-mannered ma rationale to rampaging berserker and back again in the same space of a few minutes unless there is something seriously wrong. Now, here we go. One thing that was in Bill's favor was the visit to London of American demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. Bill's story appeared on a, on a television show at the time of their stay. Lorraine immediately considered Bill that was that Bill was being possessed and got in touch with uh, him and the police station. After dialogue on both sides, the Warrens obtained the opportunity to talk with the Ramseys. The Warrens negotiated with Bill Ramsey and finally convinced him to come to their church in Connecticut and undergo an exorcism with their own specialist, Bishop Robert McKenna. Bill relented and made the trip with his wife in 1989. The tabloid newspaper, The People, sponsored the trip. The night before the exorcism was due to take place, Ramsey tried to strangle his wife while she slept. When the exorcism actually began, Bill was not at all impressed. The service was being conducted in Latin, and for half an hour, nothing happened. Bill then took, an, uh, took on an entirely different appearance. His face contorted with both hands formed as claws. McKenna commanded the demon to leave. The full force of werewolf fury descended upon McKenna, one time and then disappeared for good. The whole event was recorded on film. Bill Ramsey last appeared in public in 1992. When he updated his progress just before his exorcism, the transformations were increasing in both frequency and seriousness. Since that time, there have been no incidents recorded. No one has been rampaging uncontrollably through the streets of South End on Sea in almost 15 years. But Bill Ramsey has been quiet for just as long as that before. Okay, that is the Black Shuck, a.k.a. Bill Ramsey. God damn. All right, tell you what. I'm going to take a break, and we're going to knock out the rest of this hour uh, with these topics. And, um, yeah, I will get back to you guys in about two and two. Okay, cool. Yeah, let me get let me get two songs, if you don't mind. Yo, man, listen, it's you got to. Yeah. Um, you know, 
when you a lot of, like I said, people are always sticklers for source material. They always want the movies to match the comics exactly, and it's like that's not that's not reality. Like that, that's not you know. So. Yeah. I mean, the closest you ever get is, is the Watchmen. That's probably the closest the source material that I've ever seen as far as comic book. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, just some people just refuse to be pleased at all, and they're just looking for excuses to, 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 to not be happy. It's like, you know, what can you do? So, yeah, on HBO, yeah, it looks dope. I wouldn't be surprised, but you know, I'm I'm still gonna watch it just because, you know. Mm -hmm. I used to watch it early early years. Then I just got I kind of got away from it, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if Netflix is handling it, then they're going to spend good money for it. I'm, I'm not mad. Yeah. Good, good, good. As they should, then. Oh, I don't. We don't speak of that. We don't. We don't mention the live action. We don't. No, we, we don't mention. No. <laughs> yeah, that, that that we don't. We don't even acknowledge that nonsense. Yeah. Mm-mm. Nope. I mean, between that and Speed Racer, I was just like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. A bunch of damn nonsense at this point. I, I didn't even watch the VMAs. I was just like, you know what? I've seen every sign and symbol, every color scheme. I don't need to watch this anymore at this point, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Call it what's happening. What's on your mind tonight? Yes, sir. Hey, what's going on? Yes, you have thoughts on, on the Popeye's chicken fiasco? I said you had, you had, what are your thoughts on that? Or what was your, I'm sorry, what was your question again? I have not, no. Um, how much? How, how much time we got left on that on that song? Nah, you could call. Just call back in two minutes, bro. Just call back in two minutes. You good? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
and welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the Morning Star Show featuring Super 70, uh, shit, Super Slot 75, and it is me, I am him, Super Slot 75, um, shout out to Ron the board, uh, producer, somewhere in the comments, lurking, uh, Cindy, uh, you can catch us on www.ondawakeupradio.com. We are also on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. Um, the call-in number, as always, is 646-547-1305. You can find me on the, uh, YouTube at uh, Superslot75. Merchandise is always available at teespring.com. Four slash super slot 75. Also, please donate. Feel free to donate any amounts, which will go to airtime and the website. It's a labor of love, but we still live in a costly world. If you appreciate the free content, please help us keep the message uncensored and free. You can always donate through PayPal at on the wake up radio at gmail.com. Also, if you would like an advertisement slot, please hit us up at on the wake up radio at gmail.com. All right. So main topic number two is the vector equilibrium. Uh, this one might hurt your heads because this is some high science, smarty arty type shit. And you might want to get a pen and pad because I'm just going to kind of run through this kind of sort of because it's a lot to take in. So uh, the vector equilibrium is, is considered the male version opposite to the flower of life. OK, if you're familiar with the flower of life, then you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, ma- the vector equilibrium is also called the jitterbug. Uh, the name was coined by the American mathematician Buckminster Fuller for the geometrical transforms trans- transformations of a flexible jointed cubitohedron. Okay, now the cubitohedron is a polyhedron obtained by bisecting the twelve edges and truncating the eight corners of the cube. It can also be developed from the omnidirectional closest packing of spheres around one nuclear sphere. The centers of 12 such spheres define the 12 nodes of the cupetahedron. As all spheres are the same size, it can be seen that the length of the cupetahedron edges equal the distance from its center to its 12 nodes. Thus, the form can be considered to be a system of equal vectors, which are in equilibrium, a vector equilibrium, which is where the outward radical thrust of the vectors from the center is balanced by the circumference or the circumfer, uh initially restraining cordial vectors. Uh, the, ex- the explosive forces perfectly balanced the implosive forces. So you have forces coming in versus forces coming out and they kind of, they balance each other out. Okay. Now, uh, because energetic, energetic forces are in such unstable equilibrium, the vector equilibrium is a condition in which nature never allows herself to tarry. The vector equilibrium itself is never found exactly symmetrical in nature's crystallography, ever pulsive and impulsive. Nature never pauses her cycling at equilibrium. She refuses to get caught in recovery, uh, irrecoverably, irrecoverably at the zero phase of energy. She closes her transformative cycles at the maximum positive or negative asymmetry stations. All right. The jitterbug demonstrates complex geometric relationships in a very simple and entertaining education. Uh, okay. All right. The jitterbug then is a vector equilibrium with the internal radi- radially thrusting vectors removed so that in manipulating it, 
the pull of your hands replaces the push of nature and one can feel nature's energy circuits. With two hands holding opposite triangles and without twisting its axis, the jitterbug is symmetrically contra contracted firstly to an icosahedron uh, and then to an octahedron. At this stage, all the struts and double jo jointed together in tight parallel. Now by rotating the top triangle, you know what? We're going to skip this. This is some high science shit even for my ass. I, you know what? I'm not in the mood to even try to break this shit down for y'all because if I'm not into it, it ain't going to come across right. Basically, it's some deep shit. And it's about shapes and symmetry and vectors and relations and nodes. So, yeah, that that's we're going to we're going to skip that shit. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. All right, let's get into my final discourse for the night. The Cap Dois. What is the Cap Dois? I'm going to tell you what the Cap Dois is. The Cap Dois is basically an ancient mummified two-headed Pantagonian giant that originally originated in the jungles of Argentina, South America. Uh, the legend begins in 1673, where the giant of over 12 feet with two heads was captured by Spanish sailors and set captive on their ship. The Spaniards lashed him to the management, but he broke free and during the ensuing battle suffered a fatal injury. They skewered him through the chest with a pike. Now, what happened to him next isn't exactly clear, but his naturally mummified remains were eventually brought to England in the 19th century. He then entered the Edwardian horror circuit and over the years was passed from showman to showman, eventually ending up at the Weston's Burnback Pier in 1914. After spending the next 45 years on display in North Somerset, England, Cap Dois was purchased by one Lord Thomas Howard in 1959. And following a few more handoffs, he ultimately ended up in Baltimore, Maryland, of all places. Be more stand up. He now rests in the bizarre collection of oddities that is Bob's Sideshow at the Antique Mall Limited in Baltimore, owned by Robert Gerber and his wife. The mummified remains of the Cap Dois is believed to be real although it is still a mystery. Now, similar sightings of Pantagonian giants. Okay, so Siebert de Weert was a Dutch captain associated with the exploration of the coast of South America and the Falkland Islands south of Argentina. De Weert and several crew claimed to have seen members of a race of giants while there. De Weert described a particular incident where he was with his men in boats rowing to an island in the Magellan Strait. The Dutch claimed to have seen seven odd-looking boats approaching with uh, were full of naked giants. These giants supposedly had long hair and reddish-brown skin and were aggressive towards the crew. Now, that's one part of the story. Now, we get into the Pantagonian giants. Okay, so... Uh, for more than 250 years, Europe was captivated by the tales of a mysterious group of people that were called the Pantagonian Giants. The existence of these enigmatic and unknown beings were brought to light for the first time in the 1520s when Ferdinand Magellan and his crew saw them while exploring the coastline of South America en route to their circumnavigation. Antonio Picafetta, 
one of the expedition's few survivors and the Chronicle of Magellan's expedition, wrote in his account about their encounter with natives twice a normal person's height. One day, we suddenly saw a naked man of giant stature on the shore of the port, dancing, singing, and throwing dust on his head. The Captain General Magellan sent one of our men to the giant so that he might perform the same actions as a sign of peace. Having done that, the man led the giant to an islet where the Captain General was waiting. When the giant was in the Captain General's and our presence, he marveled greatly and made signs with one finger raised upward, believing that we had come from the sky. He was so tall that we reached only to his waist and he was well proportioned. Now, the entomology of the Pandagonian word is unclear, but the Pandagonia come, came to mean the land of big feet. Magellan seized two of the younger males as hostages to bring back to Spain, but they got sick and died on the journey. In, in 1579, Sir Francis Drake's ship chaplain Francis Fletcher wrote about meeting very tall Pandagonians. English sailor offering bread to a Pandagonian woman giant. Um, okay. In the World Encompass, London, 1628, the first detailed account of Sir Francis Drake's circumnavigation, the author Drake's nephew of the same name wrote, Magellan was not altogether deceived in naming them giants, for they generally differ from the common sort of men, both in stature, big and strength of body, and also in the hideousness of their voice. But yet they are nothing so monstrous or giant-like as they were reported, there being some Englishmen as tall as the highest of any of them we could see, but peradventure the Spaniards did not think that ever any Englishman would ever come thither to reprove them, and thereupon might presume they were more, more boldly to lie. The name Pantagonus, five cubits, uh, foot and a half, describing the full height, if not some of what more of the highest of them. But this is certain that the Spanish cruelties they are used referring to Magellan's hostage taking have made them more monstrous in mind and manners than they are in body and more inhospitable to deal with any stranger that shall come thereafter. Here's the, the where it gets dicey. Sir Francis Drake reduced the height of the Pantagonians from 10 feet to seven and a half feet, but was obviously more intent on discrediting the Spanish and blaming them for the monstrosity of the giants. Ironically, though, he was really confirming the basic facts behind the story. In the 1590s, uh, Anthony Nivet claimed he had seen bodies 12 feet long in Patagonia. Also in the 1590s, William Adams and an Englishman aboard a Dutch ship rounding Tierra de Fuego reported a violent encounter between his ship's crew and unnaturally tall natives. In 1766, a rumor leaked out upon their return to Britain that the crew of the HMS Dolphin Captain by Commodore John Byron had seen a tribe of nine foot tall natives in Patagonia when they passed by there on circumnavigation of the globe. Uh, however, when a newly re edited revised account of the voyage came out in 1773, the Patagonians were recorded as being six feet, six inches, very tall, but by no means giants. Later, it was said that Pantagonian giants were an exaggeration. Apparently, these beings were not so large after all. A French expedition under Louis de Bougainville made a point of looking for giants. We made contact with these so famous Pantagonians and found them to be no taller than other men. Uh, many men, many who were six feet or taller, much bigger than the average European of that era, but these were hardly colossi. Later explorers of the 18th and early 19th century reported the same thing. Tall people, yes, but not really giants. Uh, okay. 
Now, this is where we get into the, the Nephilim and, and, and Dita Nam. Now, we have seen on several occasions that the giants are mentioned in a number of sacred texts and books. Like, for example, the Bible tells the story of the Nephilim, but also a mysterious pre-Adamic race known as the Dita Nam people. The Dita Nam were people were ancestors of the Nephilim and the Rephim. Um, so let's get into the Dita name. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. All right, all right. Okay. There are a number of stories detailing with the Rephim and other another group of giants described as a mighty people with tall stature who lived in Canaan. Another mysterious race that is mentioned in the Bible all are, are the little known Didanum people, sometimes called the Ditanu or Tiranu. The Didanum people were ancestors of the Nephilim and Rephim. Uh, Genesis 6.1.4, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the ground, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that were fair. Yada, yada, you know the scriptures. Okay. Uh, anywho. Now. Okay, we've got the celestial beings, uh, the great flood. Okay. Now, according to the Bible, those who descended to earth and made it with the women of earth were the fallen angels, the watchers. Okay. The giants referred to in Genesis are thus the resulting interbreeding between humans and fallen angels. The Nephilim procreated not only among themselves, but created an, also an offspring with Homo sapiens. The offspring of the Nephilim were giants known as the Gaborim, heroes of old men of renown, which are mentioned in Genesis 6. The Gaborim were not as tall and powerful as Nephilim, but they were nevertheless a dangerous warrior race. What we know about the Rephaim comes from biblical, Urgetic, and Phoenician sources. The Hebrew word for Rephaim has two different meanings. Sometimes it is a reference to departed spirits whose dwelling place was Sheol. And the other occasions, the meaning of Rephaim is a mighty people with tall stature who lived in Canaan. The first reference to the Rephaim is Genesis 14.5, when the Rephaim, Zuzim, and Eman people were defeated in a battle with Ketalorma and his allies. Now, when the Israelites first approached the promised land after Exodus from Egypt, they were afraid to enter the land because it was filled with giants, the son of Anak. Uh, okay. Uh, bear with me. Okay. Giants were widely scattered through Canaan, but were known by different local names, including Raphim, Susan, Eman, and Anakim. In Deuteronomy 2.20, 21, it is written that the Raphim were strong and tall like the Anakites, Og, king of Bashan which was described as the last of the Rephim in his land in Deuteronomy 3.11, and his bed was 13 feet long, 6 feet wide. Holy shit. The Didanum people were a pre-Adamic race, and these beings were closely related to both the Nephilim and Rephim. They flourished in what is today known as Northeast Syria, long before the rise of a dynasty at Ugarit, and the legend of Kirit, also known as the Epic of King Kirit, an ancient Ugaritic epic poem dedicated to late Bronze Age, circa 1500 to 1200 BC, reveals the importance of the Didanum people when they when they summon to the council. I quote: "The written record of the sacred celebration in honor of the shades. You are summoned, O Rephim of the Netherworld. You are summoned, O Council of the Didanites, invoked in Yukon, the Rapha, invoked in Taranum." The Rafa invoked is Sidon and Radan invoked is Tar, the eternal one. You are invoked, most ancient Rephim. You are all summoned, O council of Dedanites. 
And okay, and it goes on, it goes on, it goes on. Okay, this text is crucial importance of shedding light on the historical memory behind the Rephim viewed by the Canaanite kings as their ancestors. The text describes how King Carrot, who was a descendant of the Dedanites and a ruler of the region around the mountain of Amorites and the Tidanum mountain is visited by the god El. Widely regarded as the father of all gods, El blesses King Caret and the prophecies that his family will be restored. The Didanun people were highly significant as their presence was required during the ascension of the kings. The Didanun people were also mentioned in Sumerian texts. They were the enemies of the goddess Inanna. The true origin of the Didanun people is still shrouded in, shrouded in mystery. The Canaanite text equates them with the Raphim. Other sources refer to them as giants being as a separate race not in any other way related to other giants. Based on what we know so far, we can conclude that the Dinanim people were very important pre-Adamic giants who had a lot of influence and power in this region of the world. Mm, and that is that for giant people. I mean, whether you believe it or not, I mean, it's, it's, it's up to you. That's con totally conjecture. Um, okay. I think I'm last, lastly, my last story for tonight or last uh, topic. The six genders of the Talmud, okay? I repeat, the six genders of the Talmud. So number one, an androgynous, a hermaphrodite who has both male and female reproductive organs, is similar to men in some ways and to women in other ways, and in some ways to both and in some ways to neither. Number two, in what ways is, is called the Mishnah Bergerim? In what ways is she similar to men? Like a man, she is considered unclean through semen, which is required to perform a yibun, to marry the widow of a childless brother. Like a man, dresses and cuts hair like a man, marries others and is not married off. Like a man, is obliged to perform all the commandments in the Torah like a man. Yeah. Okay, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. let me find this. Number three, number three, number three. I don't like this one. The eunuch. No. Okay. Number three is the... No, it's one, two... Okay. Mission number four, three. In what ways is she similar... Is she, he, similar to women? Like a woman, she, he, she is considered unclean through menstrual flow. She must not be alone in the company of men. And does not share the inheritance with the sons and cannot eat most of the holy sacrifices like a woman. Number four, I have heard that a saris or a eunuch undergoes a chalicha, a ceremony releasing the widow of a childless man from the obligation of a Levirate marriage. And that one undergoes chalicha for his wife and that a eunuch does not undergo chalicha. And that one does not undergo for his wife. But I am unable to explain this. Uh, see. A man eunuch, a castrated person, undergoes Shalazar and one undergoes Shalazar for his wife because there was a time when he was fit to have children. A son eunuch who is born that way does not undergo Shalazar, nor does one undergo Shalazar for his wife since there was never a time he was fit. A son eunuch undergoes Shalazar and one undergoes Shalazar for his wife because there is a cure. A man eunuch does not undergo nor does one undergo for his wife since he has no cure. 
Okay, Levite marriage wherein, wherein a man weds his childless brother's wife for his wife to uphold the opinion of Rabbi Akiva. The eunuch under neither, neither under un, the eunuch neither undergoes shalazah nor performs yibum. Similarly, an analyte, a woman who's a, with arrested sexual development, cannot bear children. Neither performs shalazah. If a eunuch underwent shalazah for his yivana. A woman whose husband died, died childless and whose brother-in-law must marry or dismiss her, he does not qualify her for subsequently marrying a priest. If he had relations with her, he does, he does disqualify her since this is licentious relations because she is forbidden to him. Similarly, if brothers underwent Chalazar from an analyte, they do not disqualify her from marrying a priest. If they had relations with her, they do disqualify her since this is licentious relations. Oh boy, uh, I just want to get to the actual terms. This is actually the, the Torah part I didn't kind of want to get into per se. Here's one, one, one point. It says the identity and birthright of a human is not expressed by the separate organ parts of his body. And this will be the most important, but by the spirit and the soul which are within them. So, and, and they're saying basically you could be born... Oh, in in the opposite sex body and feel that the opposite of what you're born into. So because it's kind of, I mean, because we've we've all heard stories, you know, if, if you believe in the soul and the spirit, they're androgynous. They're they're neither male or female. You've heard stories of, of people saying they they feel like they've been born in the wrong body, right? They feel the opposite of what their body is, and there's this schism and there's this conflict uh, that's, that's 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 always going on and in, in within the, the person's uh, psyche. For the most part, so now the Shatan Sofer got it right when he wrote that the body is not the human, rather, the body is a bag made of dust, and within that bag is inner wisdom, knowledge, and thoughts, which are the true definitions of a personality. Um, now initially, there's six genders, but then they there's other articles saying there's eight, uh, there's two additional genders. I just want to get down to the actual names of the genders itself. So just bear with me. Seeing eight genders, the six genders of classic Judaism. Okay. Okay. So here we go. The terms. Zakar. This term is derived from the word for a pointy sword and refers to a phallus. It is usually translated as male in English. Nakiva. This term is derived from the word for a crevice and probably refers to a vaginal opening. It is usually translated as female in English. Androgynous, person who has both male and female sexual characteristics. There are 149 references in Mishnah and the Talmud, the first and eighth century versions. There's 350 mentions in the classical Midrash and Jewish law codes, second and, second and 16th centuries. The Tumtum. A person whose sexual characteristics are indeterminate or obscured. There are 181 references in the Mishnah and Talmud. There are 335 in classical Midrash and Jewish law codes. The Alonit, a person who is identified as female at birth but develops male characteristics at puberty and is infertile. There are 80 references in Mishnah and the Talmud, 40 in classical Midrash and Jewish law codes. The Saris, a person who is identified as male at birth, 
but develops female characteristics as puberty and or is lacking a penis. A Saris can be a naturally an, uh, a Saris can be naturally a Saris or Samus Hama or become one through human intervention. Saris Adam. There are 156 references in the Mishnah and Talmud, 379 in classical Midrash and Jewish law codes. Those are your six genders of the Talmud. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, those, are, those are your six. So depending on your faith, are these people crazy? Are these people mentally ill? Because now there's what, 156 different genders Outside of the the, the 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 normal male and female, what we de- what we define as male and female, right? So, um, I, I don't know. I mean, the Talmud is pretty old, but like I said, it it all depends on your faith and how much credit you put into the into the Talmud itself. Um, yeah, I think that's it for tonight. Those are all my talking points. I don't think I missed anything. Oh, yes. Uh, I came across a quote from Carl Jung, famous. Uh, uh, I forget. I forget what he does. But Carl Jung, a psycho, uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. Okay, the oh, we got a caller. All right, caller, what's going on tonight? What's bragging? What's on your mind? What's on your mind? Hello. Yeah, I can hear you. I mean, I try, brother. I try. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, you know that you know we, we used to laugh at the idea of, of of remember the copy the Cosby Show the episode when the men got pregnant. Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. It's coming. Yes. Well, they had an episode where they went to one Earth where Rembrandt, the brother that was in the group, mm-hmm. he was Earth doppelganger went missing, and he was, I guess, his first doppelganger was one baby. Baby, the baby was born. It was the, one of the weirdest things ever. This was like spiders. I want to say season four. Mm-hmm. I forget which episode number it was, but it was like season four, and that kind of freaked me out back then. And it's just That too, and a lot of black women go into the hospitals, and the doctors tell them, "Well, you, you know, your your wounds barren. We need we need to you need a hysterectomy." You know, they, they you know they're out, they're out there flat out lying to these women, telling them they, they need to get their uh, 
uterus is taken out because of whatever the case may be. Are they doing that shit? I mean, they're still in the women's wounds, basically. That's what, yeah, you're right. And a lot of sisters going missing every year. That's not, that's, that's not by coincidence at all. So, yeah, definitely. Man, that's all I got, man. It's just, man, it was, uh, for sure, like always, man, my hand is sore from taking all these notes, man. <laughs> just keep doing what you do, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's up. I appreciate it, my brother. Thank you. Uh, another caller. Caller, what's on your mind? What's bracking tonight? What's happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so first, you know, if if you believe that's possible, and then secondly, is the faith or religion that you that you practice. Thirdly, is if you believe um, souls have no gender. You know, if you if you were at one point in a past life a man and you came into this life as a woman, you may have some type of manly residual tendencies or you may have flashbacks and memories of of doing manly things or vice versa. You know, um, to me, I'm anything's possible. I would never discount anybody that truly felt that way, because if you can if you know somebody that's going through it, the confliction in them is real. Like they are really going through that shit. It ain't like this will go one day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, some people. Right. I mean, those are those are legitimate cases. I, I would be like, OK, I could I could see this person really, you know, wanting the, the change to who they naturally feel, which I totally understand. But they're, you know, that's like that. They're not on the hormone drugs. The drugs fuck with you, fuck with your mind as well, too. But there are a lot of people that are so conflicted, you know. Right. That, that's real. And then you and then sometimes that leads to the, the conversation of, you know, is gender. Do we is it or do we have it right or do we have it wrong? You know, or is it is it more than just two or, you know, and so it's 
one of those conversations most people don't want to have, but you have situations like, you know, with somebody that's so conflicted that kind of just throws a monkey wrench and all that shit. So, you know. Okay. So I kind of like changed my uh my tag on there to uh full spectrum analysis. Gotcha. And I did go to your site because I wanted to get in touch with y'all about the podcast thing because I've been looking forward to uh starting up my own YouTube channel and doing like the podcast stuff. So okay. I'm trying to see if uh I can shoot you like an email or or something. I don't know what what all that I need to do to qualify for you know that, but I would like to look into it and be really serious about that. So if you can help me with that in some way, I got you. I will put the email in the, in the chat right now for you, bro. All right. Thank you, man. Right. Thank you, you too, bro. All right. All right. Awesome. 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 It's always good when, when people call in because uh, I vibe off y'all, you know, so I, I y'all know me. I hate to hear myself talk for too long, you know? So, uh, yeah, Martin, the, 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 in the chat, I just put the email. That's what you need to contact. Um, for the uh the podcast and stuff i'll highlight it so oh so i'm gonna leave i'm gonna leave everybody with um reader's digest i just love reading reading uh, reading reader's digest this once again this is for old heads uh reader's digest so for every 200 people you meet okay keep in mind for every 200 people you meet two of those people are are ghosts or spirits Reader's Digest. So keep in mind for every 200 people you meet, two of them are ghosts. Interesting stuff. So um, I am going to wrap this up. Uh, I want to thank everybody that's um, participated tonight in the chat. Um, CP30, thank you for the super chat, bro. Um, yeah. So once again, you know, in the words of Pops from Regular Show, good show. Um, uh, do this again. We'll be back again next week. I will have another another movie breakdown. This one is a gem. I promise you. Next week's movie breakdown. Uh, it's it's another '80s movie, but it's a classic, and I mean it's a classic. So, uh, with that being said, I'm gonna let you guys get up out of here. Enjoy the rest of your night, and I will do the same. And I will see y'all in about you know uh, seven seven days. Right, y'all have a y'all good night. Peace, love, and light. Peace. All right. I know I was supposed to end it at like 55, but I was like, fuck it. I ain't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, it was Art and um, Art called in and uh, shit, I forget. Yeah, those are my oh, Ted, oh, Teku, yeah, 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 Teku, Teku, yeah, Teku Brown, yes, yes, yes.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, cool. You have a good one. Uh, yes, sir. Peace. All right, yo. Uh, great show, everybody. Thank you for everybody for hanging out. Um, I hope you guys got some, took some away from it. Um, so, um, yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to get long winded with this shit. Uh, how would you know if you if they are a ghost? Uh, I mean, if you're if you're a a, a, a force sensitive person, you would know, but the average person doesn't know. So, you know, it happens. It happens. So, with that being said, you guys get out of here. Enjoy the rest of your night. Um, I will do the same. Shout out to everybody in the chat. I'm sorry, I ain't, I ain't shout, you, get, shout you guys out. I'm sorry, but you know, it's usual suspects. All all my maniacs. I appreciate it. I appreciate the love. So, and you know, um, y'all just be safe and be vigilant. And, you know, be great. So with that being said, I, I wish you guys adieu. And uh, y'all have a good night. Peace.